Hey, everybody, it's TV host and actress Beth Keener, and you're listening to Life After the Crown with Tim Tialdo. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Life After the Crown podcast, where each episode I bring you useful interviews with former pageant contestants, title holders, and women of influence who are now succeeding across many different industries in the real world. My name is Tim Tialdo, lifestyle entrepreneur, pageant host, author, and quite honestly, somebody who just wants to help you become a better person overall. Now, if pageant life is over for you, or it soon could be, and you're wondering, well, what do I do now? Or what's next? This podcast is designed to help make the transition to real life and the school of hard knocks a little bit easier for you to handle. So if this is your first time listening, thanks for tuning in. We're glad you're with us today. Let's get started. My guest today is a native Georgia peach and an on-camera host. She grew up doing pageants all across Georgia. She began her career as a television and film actress on various projects, including The Walking Dead, The Vampire Diaries, One Tree Hill, Battle Los Angeles, and most recently, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Long Haul, among many others. She is currently the digital host and fan engagement reporter on Fox Sports South for Atlanta United. Her hosting clients have included CNN, the Atlanta Hawks, the Weather Channel, Atlanta Apartment Living, and Lights Camera Location. She is the ongoing spokesperson for the global company's Mohawk Carpet Industries and Hexagon Technologies. She has been in over 40 regional and national commercials, and you might have seen her as the last woman standing in Live with Kelly's co-host search competition a couple years back before Ryan Seacrest ended up taking the helm. She is one of the most energetic and hilarious people I have met along my career. Beth Keener, so glad you could come on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Man, I love when you read intros because I'm, I imagine everybody that comes on the show feels so freaking cool. I think they do, and they always thank wow. me for it. But you know what? I, what I love about doing it is it, it's a good chance for you to remember all the stuff that you've truly accomplished because I think we all get in a bubble where we're so worried about what we're doing right now that we forget how much we've really accomplished. You know, it's so true. I think it, one of the curses of being an ambitious person is that you forget to stop where you are and go, wow, my life is great, and look at where I am right now. You always you accomplish something, and then you want to move forward. And, well, what's next, what's next, what's, ne- what's next? So when somebody reads it to you, you're like, well, damn. Excuse me, am I allowed to say that on the podcast? Oh, yeah. Forgive me. Yeah, it seems like it's always <laughs> all about the next thing. Yes, absolutely. Well, hey, let's talk about the one thing in there that really sticks out, uh, the whole Live with Kelly co-host competition. Now, I remember this a couple of years ago, this was a really big deal. Um, and that's been, gosh, yeah. that's been a high-rated show for, what, now 15 years? I remember when she first got the job with Regis. Um, and as yeah. the competition kept narrowing the field, there you were just making it all the way down to the final five. So at what point did you think, you know what, this is actually a possibility that I could literally be Kelly Ripa's co-host? Oh, man. Um, maybe when they called me for New York, when they were like, listen, we're going to fly you up and you're going to compete on the show for next week. I mean, it was that quick of a turnaround. Um, yeah, it was the most incredible experience. I think it's one of those things where it's a dream job, right? My, my ultimate dream job would be to work with Kelly Ripa or to be her on uh, Live with Beth. But, um, you know, just the whole process was really invigorating and really promising, too, because I think all of us feel like we just exist and we have these high hopes and that we're working really hard where we are. It feels like it's so unattainable. But when you just put yourself out there, you realize how far you can really go. 
Well, talk about that because I remember a few years before that. Uh, I don't, you may、mm-hmm. remember it as well. There was a Oprah had a show called、uh, "Host Your Own Show," and it, I think it was hosted by Nancy O'Dell, and it was all about winning your own show on her network. And I know, you know, literally thousands of people auditioned. And I think when you see an audition like this, you think the whole country is going to freak an audition. Why could I possibly win?、Sure. What made you say, you know what? I think I can do it. Woo, Tim! Because I'm crazy. <laughs> you know, it was like. In my head, I was like, "Of course, Kelly would want me. Why wouldn't she want me?" But I will say, I,、um, you know, it's like I've always wanted to to do some of these kind of competitions, and sometimes you just want to know if you can hold your own as a host. And one thing that I had learned over the past few years was like really finding my own voice as a host, because hosting came to me a, a little bit later than acting and TV and film. That TV and film was like the first thing that really. Got my career moving and shaking. So hosting then came along, and I really had to figure out what my authentic voice was and who I was, what my special spice was, if you would. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to go for it. And so I had learned some editing skills、um, in creating the local lens, which is my local entertainment show that I do with my friend Greer Howard here, based out of Atlanta. And through developing the, that skill set、uh, with her. I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. I'm just going to go for it. And I'm a sillier human being, so I thought I'm going to bring in best perspective on life into the work that I do or in the, into the video that I create. And I'm just going to send it in and see if they bite. And they totally bit. <laughs> so, what was the most challenging part for you? Because I think you know, there's so much that goes into that first audition tape that you send. You think it's got to be perfect, and if I don't have it perfect, you know, they're not going to call me. But then they call you. And then they say you're going to fly to New York, and you're going to be on live television, and we're going to throw some things at you. Were you scared about what they were going to throw, or were you pretty confident about your abilities? Oh, I was so scared! Oh my goodness,、um, you know, because it went from 40, and then they gave you another challenge, which took, which took it to 20, and then the top 10 had a phone call interview. And so by the time you're at top five, you know, you're you're thinking, oh wow, this is j- they're just going to have a lot of fun with us. But every time we would go in, they would be like, you know, this is a competition. You know, this person next to you is your competitor. You got to look at this like a competition, and so they kind of, you know, freak you out a little bit. And、um, I'll never forget the first day on the show. We were they moved the five of us around, and each of us got, I think, thirty seconds or a minute for like a quick monologue to Kelly or to America, like why we should be the host. And they put us in this tiny room. You know, when you're in a stairwell, like in a parking deck, and how small that little <laughs> stairwell hall is. <laughs> yeah, it was like no stairs. And one door, kind of that kind of room, where and it was a white box of emotion. And then one person would get called, and the door would open, and you would see them disappear, and you would he- start hearing the crowd and the audience cheer. And then the door, no, no joke, Tim would go <laughs> and shut. And then we were like, oh my gosh! I mean, honestly, the best way I could put it, and not to be off color in any way, but my little tiny butt was so tight, it was like woo. You know, I was clenching because it was tough, and、uh, I got really nervous. And、uh, and then I went out there, and I don't know if anyone out there might have seen my take, but I, it's like the the top of a tea kettle blew off when it was finally my turn to go. So that was the most <laughs> nerve wracking part. Well, here's what I find interesting about the whole competition: is they did this whole thing, narrowed it down. It was you five, and then they went through that. You ended up getting cut, regardless if you made it or not. But then they take Seacrest. So what was the point of the whole competition? I think ratings. Um, I, I think maybe engagement, fan engagement for their audience, 
And I don't know that they really ever had any intention of that person potentially coming on board full time. I definitely think a lot of those shows, you know, they sometimes can take dips. And I know after Michael left, there was a lot of time in between Kelly choosing her next co-host. So this kind of created new dialogue and new buzz around the show. I mean, it was probably a really smart move, honestly, from the production standpoint. But that's why I think they did it. So did somebody, I never actually watched the end of, did somebody actually win and be, be on the show for a little bit? Yes, this guy named Rich won. And Rich was a school teacher from Pennsylvania. And he actually taught production. And he not only did it a couple of times, I think he ended up coming back and hosting with Kelly like seven or eight times in the process of them then choosing Ryan. So this was all in between the co-host search and them announcing Ryan. So I guess here's the real question. Out of that whole process and, you know, some of the uh, attention that came from it, uh, did anything come out of it for you otherwise outside of the contest? You know, I tried to fish around for some New York and L.A. hosting agents. Um, I, honestly, I, I do wish I had done a better job and me and my representation together as a unit. I wish we had done a better job at, at looking for a more a larger agent or hosting agent on a national scale, because in Atlanta, you kind of create your own opportunity. You don't necessarily have a lot of opportunities for that kind. You know how it is, Tim. You know the market you're in. And it's just, there's not a whole lot of opportunities. You kind of have to be in New York and LA. And so we were looking for that. And so, I mean, I ended up hosting a gala for Georgia Entertainment, the Georgia Entertainment Gala that came out of it. And um, what else? There was one other thing that people noticed me, but usually it's just honest. Tim, I hate to admit it, but it's just me be living my normal life and kind of being an idiot. And that's usually when I get hired. It's like if I try too hard, it never works out. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I had on uh, Sean Weatherly uh, a few months back. She was Miss mm. Universe 1980. She was on the first cast of Baywatch. And she talked oh about goodness. yeah, she talked about how she would go into auditions and she would just suck. And she would get auditions when she didn't care. You know, she'd go in and be like, I, I barely have time today. I'm just going to go in and rip it out real quick and get out. And she would yeah. get those jobs and she would end up talking to her coach and he would say, why do you think you got those? And she would be like, I don't know. And he'd be like, because you didn't care. You were just you. And I think that's so true across all audition type jobs, whether it's hosting, acting, uh, commercial work, whatever. Uh, and it sounds like it's the same for you. Oh, so true. And, you know, we oftentimes feel like we have to be what somebody else wants. And one thing that I continue to work on, but that I truly believe is that what is meant to be mine is going to be mine. And I, no matter how well I perform on a certain day, it's not going to make this opportunity be more mine than someone else's. I definitely believe that as long as you show up and you give your best, like you work as, and and your best is different for, for everyone. For me, it's knowing that I did the best I could in that moment, meaning I tried as hard as I could. Like if I just kind of half ate it, if you will, I'm trying to mind my language here today, Tim, because I'm a classy lady. I got it. But you know, if then you, then yes, I could beat myself up. But if I genuinely worked hard at what I was doing and went in and just was my authentic self, I have to walk away knowing that if that job doesn't come my way, it is meant to be someone else's job. It's not meant to be mine. Well, let's talk about hosting. And there is a lot to unpack here because I've had quite a few hosts on. Everybody from you. Uh, we had Lisa Wilson on. We had uh, right. Susie Castillo, Shandy Finnessy. We've had quite a few on. Wow. And I think what you mentioned earlier um, really sticks out to me because it's it's kind of the perception in today's hosting world. And you and I, I know we both have dealt with it. And that is the fact that you said, you know, you almost have to live in New York or L.A. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, if, I, if I'm 
taken a guess as why that is, it's because the agents right now control the hosting industry. And it wasn't always like that. For sure. And, you know, now that, you know, mostly it's like William Morris and a few of these other agencies, uh, Creative Artists Agency and a couple others, um, they all tell you, you know, I, I even have one in my book that I wrote that says, hey, Tim, because you don't live in L.A., I just don't think I can help you. Good luck in your career. What do you think that people, you know, like yourself in Georgia or people across middle America should think in terms of pursuing a job in TV hosting right now? It's complicated. Um, I, I think that what's wonderful about where we are is that there are so many avenues now, more than there ever have been for a person to get experience, to start learning what they look like on camera, to create their own content, to put it out there for public consumption. And it's relatively low cost, right? You can get all kinds of equipment and shoot everything from your phone. So in that realm, it's very, very easy for someone to get started. However, unless the work that you're doing goes viral, um, there's really no way of really gaining an audience the way that shows and agents are looking for. And one roadblock that I've been running into as a host recently, and I, I don't know where you stand on this too, Tim, is that, you know, every job or agent that that is larger, they're like, well, what are your numbers? I just want to know what happened to the days where my work is good. Like you put me in a situation, I can do it. I have the talent, I have the ethic to go and to do something and to do it well. But I don't, I, I did not grow up in a generation where it, everything is so digital. You hit it on the head and it's, they're, they're putting way too much into the analytics of social media. So I, I go back right. a few years as an example, and this goes back probably five years, but it was a American Idol and they actually hired Chloe was it Chloe Kardashian? I think oh, so. They, they hired her. Yeah. Yes. And she had no hosting experience whatsoever, but just because she had her, you know, massive Instagram following, they put her on. And let's just be honest, you know, from a hosting standpoint, she was terrible. Now she may have a big yeah. name, she may have a look, whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, those of us who are, you know, natural hosts, it's what we've worked for our entire careers. Yeah, it is a real punch in the gut because basically what the New York and L.A. agents are saying is, hey, if you don't live where we live and if you don't you mm -hmm. know, pursue the, the, uh, the goals and the ways that we want to do it, then you're not going to get a job. It is a little bit debilitating for people who are very naturally gifted. But what's funny is, you know, they'll do these big shows like, um, you know, your, your uh, competition for Live on Kelly and then they've got American Idol in the voice. And where do most of those people usually come from that win? The Midwest or, you know, Central yeah. uh, or Middle America. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, they're out there because you wouldn't sign them because they didn't live in the geographic location that you said they should. So I always find it interesting that they end up picking those people, but they won't sign those people in the first place. And, you know, to that point, Tim, I get it. Back in the day when you had to write letters to people in order to talk to <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, and you did. It made, it made sense. Yeah. I mean, totally. Like back when Gene Kelly was like a massive deal and Hollywood was in its heyday and glam and, and being geographically centered to that location totally makes sense. But now you would think that because things are so digital and because fl flying and getting places is relatively inexpensive, they would be more willing to open up this the scope in which they're willing to represent talent. And because even when I met with, I actually just had a meeting in LA with a hosting agent. And um, I say just like in February, but she loved me. We hit it off. She's like, I really like your vibe. And, but you know, I really think there's um, like a step between where you are now and where I want you to be before I represent you. And I'm like, but if you see that, give me the step, you're, the, you're the gate holder. 
So open the gate and help me with that step because you already know I can get there. But I just think the mindset right now is so complicated and it doesn't have to be. Well, and I think it's hurt the industry because instead of concentrating on building your talent, getting experience on the local level, doing everything from, you know, TV hosting to commercial acting to, uh, you know, live emceeing at the sports games like you do that we'll talk about here in a little bit. Mm -hmm. People are now just concentrating on if I don't have, you know, 100,000 followers, I'm nobody. And so that's all they concentrate on all day long. And they end up not learning one of the basics of hosting, which you and I know, and that is you got to get out and talk with people live. You got to meet them in Mm -hmm. person. You got to be interacting. And if all you're doing all day is having your head buried in your phone because that's all you're trying to do. You're actually missing out on the whole kind of beginning experience of becoming a great host. So, yeah, I think if any agents are listening, you know, you guys got to yeah. solve this thing. And, uh, you know, it's so n- true. not to rip on you guys, but look, you've got to con- reconnect with middle America. I feel like I'm talking about politics here, but no, we're talking about TV hosting. You got to reconnect <laughs> with the people who are across middle America who dev- have a ton of talent who could definitely help you. Well, and, you know, to your point about social media, it's also taking away the authentic charm that a lot of us established hosts have because it's creating this new level of stress and value that. Um, we have to have in social media. So for someone, that's not how I communicate. I am an in-person talk on <laughs> you the and phone. Me both. Yes, like let's connect. And but I honestly think for you and I, then that probably is what makes us great hosts because we want to be there. We want to be present. You won't find me uh, messing around with my phone when I'm with you because that's not who I am. So for you to then put on me, well, if your following was was larger, then I would consider you as a host. That then creates another level of stress for those of us who actually really are great hosts because then you're asking us to go back and do something that's kind of against our nature just in order to feel valuable. And then you have these new hosts only seeking value there rather than actually acquiring the skills necessary to be successful. Yeah, so folks, we're not salty at all. This is our soapbox. We're just telling you what's wrong. Telling you what's wrong with the industry, but uh, hey, here's what I want to talk about. You know, is uh, you know, if you are on the local level, um, you and I have both done this, and I think you're doing a really good job of it right now. And that's you created the local lens. Talk a little bit about how you've kind of established your own hosting job. Yes, and so that would be my bit of advice to people who are looking to be hosts is. Um, and I work with students at Kennesaw State University, and uh, and I tell them the same thing. You kind of have to be willing to create your own content, right? Content creation is kind of the big buzz word or words right now. And for me, that was the local lens. And initially, it was just something. And actually, you know, I should tell everyone out there, Tim has actually been this great resource for me and uh, a man of wisdom because I would reach out to him or I'd send him some stuff like, hey, I'm doing this, <laughs> I'm doing that. And, and Tim, is this okay? And he'd be like, yes, you're doing great or, you know, try this or whatever. And, and thank goodness for that because it's really helped point me in the right direction. And with Local Lens, um, there was the entertainment community that was growing here in Atlanta. And I initially wanted to just talk about things to do, just to do something on camera to get my chops going and learn some editing skills. But then when I was meeting with my accountability partner, Greer Howard, who has been in the business many, many years, was very talented and is very talented. You know, we were we were realizing our goals were very much the same. And then we had this thriving community of artists and entertainment here, whether that be sports or music or TV or film. Um, it was all here and nobody was talking about it. So we were like, let's do it. So at first we did, we stalked people on social media, try to figure out where they were, or what they were talking about or what was being shot here. 
and we would do what was called the entertainment buzz. And then that has grown, Tim, into this really cool, um, these relationships that we've built where we're on red carpets interviewing people. We're going to junkets. We're um, sitting down with the stars of, of films like for instance, on the red carpet, Greer and I interviewed Denzel Washington. We've interviewed Tyler Perry, Simon Helberg, um, Tony Gonzalez, who used to play for the Atlanta Falcons. Um, it, I mean, the list goes on and on. Norman Reedus, Greg Nicotero. It, it's just been this incredible venture for us. Now, it's so hard and we want to give up all the time all the time, but um, we just keep pushing forward. So explain to those listening where that, uh, not podcast, but that show airs, because uh, when I tried to create my show in St. Louis, we did, and we were trying really hard to get it picked up on the local affiliates, and uh, they just wanted it a very specific way, and they, you know, they wanted to make it into an infomercial, and I just wasn't willing to do that, and so we ended up just doing it online. How have you two gone about, you know, getting your show out on the airwaves? Well, you know, we haven't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we, it's all it's all digital you know we've been featured by 11 alive here you know it's interesting though when you start pitching as you know i, I feel like so much of what you and i have experienced is very p- parallel but you know people are very close-minded or they're like oh well, atlanta's not a hub or oh we can do it for cheaper you know based out of some of these local affiliate stations so it's actually been pretty difficult so everything that we've created and we shot a pilot that we're shopping now um, again we've been shopping it for about a year it's just been a lengthy process and we've got some great people behind us but i would be lying to you if it wasn't uh if i said it wasn't hard it's so hard um but we, we air on the local lens youtube um channel we have a website called the local lens we're also um, there's a hub for Atlanta artists and creators called VA T H E A, um, and it's all based out of Atlanta. And so we have a channel there. It's a streaming service. So yeah, we're we're really making headway, but not as quickly as we'd like, Tim. I need my bank account to reflect <laughs> it. Well, that was going to be my next question because you know when you have a passion to do something, as you and I have done. And, you know, maybe you were in local news or you were doing something else and they just weren't having what you wanted to do. You decided to create it yourself. But look, this is the world we live in today. It's a business world and you can do your passion all day long and you can have fun creating. But if you can't sustain something that is financially profitable, you don't have a future. So how have you girls been able to keep it going to this point? We pivot a lot. You know, we pivot based on what we need, what we financially can do in the moment um, or in the year or the month. Uh, We've also learned or discovered equipment that we can use. Like, for instance, recently, because everyone is consuming information in such bite-sized portions, we uh, bought a bunch of like higher end, but like super inexpensive gear for your iPhone. And so everything we shoot, like today, actually, I came straight from interviewing an Atlanta Braves player. And we shot it on our iPhone. We bought this this really great mic. Um, We have a little ring light that we plug in. And we've we've figured out how to be resourceful so that our content can still be there. Because as they say, content is king. But you also don't want the production value to make people dismiss the content you create or to become such an issue that people can't watch your stuff. So if it's a larger interview, like we'll do next week for uh, crazy rich Asians, then we'll actually pay a crew to come in. Yeah. That's the name of that movie. I feel, I feel so insulting saying it, you know, the crazy rich Asians. That's hilarious. It's like, what? It's crazy. Well, okay. I didn't, I didn't mean to say crazy, but maybe I did. Okay. Um, 
it's next week. Um, but yeah, we'll hire a crew for that. So we manage our finances based on what we can actually do at that time. Well, so let, let's wrap all this up for the people listening. So, and just from what you've heard Beth talk about an experience and, and what I've gone through over my career. And, you know, as Beth mentioned, I even wrote the book on the industry, which has evolved quite a bit over the years. Number one, you know, if you want to be a TV host, it is not just about, you know, being on camera anymore. Those days are long gone. The old days of like E! News Live and I'm on there and that's all I do. Those days are long gone. You have to learn how to Mm -hmm. shoot, edit, light, Mm -hmm. voice. You have to, you know, market. You have to, you know, book your own interviews. You have to go out and find places to shoot. You've got to figure out what gear works for you. You've got to be able to afford all that. And then you also have to be a salesman. If you are going to sell advertising for your show or you're going to figure out how to keep it on the air or keep it even, you know, as you mentioned, digital, you have got to mm-hmm. figure out how you're going to pull an income to do that because creativity can go a long way. But as you mentioned earlier, if it doesn't go viral and it just catches the eye of some company that says, hey, we got 50 grand, we want to sponsor this thing, that doesn't happen very often. And if it does, that's great. But for the majority of you, I would say 90 to 95 percent of you, you have got to learn all those skills and figure out how to put them together yourself and then go out and pitch that to different people, as you have heard Beth do. So, look, I love the fact that you're doing that. And I know it is a hard, difficult road because I've been through it. But uh, you guys are succeeding. And I, uh, I admire that. Thank you, Tim. And, you know, it does sound overwhelming. But man, like when you are self-sufficient, how empowering does that feel? It does. I mean, I, you know, this podcast is 100% me. I, nobody else does anything except talk to me. That's it. <laughs> it would be really hard for you to talk to yourself. Yeah, Tim, I am right. so glad people are helping you there. Yeah, no ventriloquism would be, here. I would, pay to li- I would listen to that, though. If you did have a conversation with yourself, sign me up. Yeah, it would be about be two podcasts and then everybody would be like, okay, that was good. We're done. <laughs> so, hey, currently you're what, what they call the uh, fan engagement host uh, for Atlanta United. Now, some people would just call it like the on-field MC or the Jumbotron girl or whatever. Actually, I don't... Um, I don't actually, so for the Hawks, I have done that, but for Atlanta United, the, the, the role is actually a little different. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, they actually, they created uh, the role of the digital host, the Atlanta United digital host uh, for me. And so basically they wanted someone who was a fan, who was connected to the community, who could also cover their content and tell the stories of not only the fans, but the players and uh, be the connection online so that all of their public-facing content, um, when they need one voice to represent the team, I would be that voice. Okay, got it. Okay, I read it wrong. I knew you did it for the Hawks, but I didn't understand that it was different for Atlanta United. So, well, hey, let's go ahead and talk about both of them. One is obviously, you know, you grab a mic in front of a crowd of, you know, 10, 15,000 people and you engage them. And the other one is kind of about mm-hmm. engaging online. Talk about the differences between those and kind of you know, what you love about it. Yeah. Okay. So one, the, the live hosting, as you know, as you know, I feel like I could just say, as you know, all podcasts, Tim, <laughs> is a, you know, Tim, as you know, um, but it is hard. It is hard. And the feedback uh, that feedback, meaning the actual feedback of your own voice after you mm-hmm. speak words yep. into the mic is so uh, distracting. Um, so, so developing that skill in and of itself was real rough for me. I'm not going to lie. Um, the first time I had absolutely humiliated myself ever, where I literally wanted to crawl in a hole and die, was when I had a callback for the Atlanta Braves as their in-stadium host. Mm-hmm. 
And that was my first encounter with reverb. So flash forward to working with the Hawks, I was very nervous. But, um, you know, you're keeping the crowd alive. You're trying to maintain the energy in the arena when there are timeouts or and keep the fan engagement, make the entire experience super fun. So the amount of energy that you have to bring to that job is crazy. And so I've only um, worked with the Atlanta Hawks uh, periodically. They have two great women who do that more regularly than I do. And then um, while I was doing that, the Atlanta Hawks, one of their the, their GM met me, uh, Carlos Bocanegra is his name, and he asked if I would interview to actually for the job that Fox Sports South was offering. And um, I didn't know enough about soccer. You know, I was a huge fan, but can't do the lingo and, and the soccer speak. And so they <laughs> developed this role. It's, it's, I don't, are you a soccer fan, Tim? You know, I actually had the same thing happen last year. I hosted an event for Samsung in Vegas, and they had me uh, basically do play-by-play of this uh, video game that was a soccer game. And I'm like, I don't know anything about oh. soccer. And they're like, you'll manage. Go for it. Oh, no, no, no. See, that's nightmare fuel. That right there <laughs> would make me not sleep for a week. <laughs> But I did it, and it actually worked out. You know, uh, my last, did it? Okay. my yeah. final guests, the last day was the uh, group LMFAO. They wanted to play, and they were like, "Can we play?" And I'm like, "Well, sure, jump in." And <laughs> it, it was a pretty cool experience. Real quick, though, tell me what you said. Were you like, "All right, ball kick, kick the ball"? I, I, well, it actually, there were a few people there who were very into this. Uh, uh, it was one of those EA sports games, and it was just it was a big deal for mm-hmm. them. And so we just went through a couple of practice games, and I said, so tell me what's going on as, as you're playing. And so they would spit it out, and I just kind of picked it up, and I, I had a very limited vocabulary that I stuck to, but I nailed that vocabulary well. And so when, <laughs> you know, when there was a crowd of you know, 50 to 100 people standing around the video game, um, I was able to hold my own and not sound like an idiot. You know what? I'm going to take that from your playbook, then, because <laughs> if I get put in a situation like that, I'm going to get around some people who know what to say. And I'm going to be like, say that stuff to me really quickly over and over so that I can know what to say. Because I, think, I would, in that moment, would be so confused. Well, the hardest thing was not the, so much the soccer lingo. It was the names because, you know, these were international teams. Was, and, you know, some uh, of them yeah. were very well-known people. Um, the, you know, there's Ronaldo, which is a very easy one, but then there's all these other names. I'm like, I have no idea what they are. And people are like, that's not right. And I'm like, I don't know what it is. <laughs> so I would just say whatever came out of my mouth. And so that made it interesting. Don't judge me. There's so many people on the screen. <laughs> so, oh my uh, goodness. So let, crazy. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about acting and commercial gigs because, you know, you have kind of a, a I guess, kind of a triangle, so to speak, of a career. You know, you've mm-hmm. got the hosting. Mm-hmm. And then you've done a lot of acting, as we mentioned at the beginning, and commercial gigs. So let's first talk about acting. Um, you've done some pretty big shows. Uh, which yeah. do you love? Which do you love the most out of the three? Oh, hosting by far. Why? Yeah, for sure. I, I love. It took me a long time to figure out. I grew up on the stage, and I and I'm actually a, a vocalist, so I could sing. And you know, theater was a natural migration for me. I loved it initially, but I guess it took me doing TV and film for a while, which is very different than live theater, that what I initially really loved, but it came naturally. So I pursued it. And then when I ended up in LA and I got into the groundlings and I started learning more about improv and listening and responding and also bringing, again, my authentic self to what I was doing, I realized very quickly that I liked being me more than I liked being a character. And I liked connecting from a human perspective more than I like being a character connecting to another character. 
so it was then that I moved home that I was swore off TV and film, which it came back around anyway, because I feel like most things do. But um, I went back to school and, and Fox Sports South, actually, I've had the craziest like experiences with hosting, but <laughs> I went in for another ambassador job. And then the VP was like, my reporter just left. I think you should do it. And I had never done live reporting a day in my life. So it, I was kind of thrown to the wolves, if you will. But it was a very, very treacherous, difficult job, but also made me realize it was invigorating and I loved it. So that's why it would be hosting for me. Okay. Well, in terms of the acting, um, we mentioned what mm-hmm. The Walking Dead, The Vampire Diaries, right. One Tree Hill, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I mean, these are some big productions. Where, do, where does the acting bug come from for you? I think I'm a middle child, Tim. I have a need for love and acceptance and attention. And so that really evolved into being an actor. I think I first got on stage at 10. And then um, I graduated early from high school to go perform in a professional theater in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And so then from there, I moved back to finish my degree, but I was really unhappy. I got my real estate license. I was working with my mom and I realized that the the creative part of my life was gone. It was missing. So I got into an acting class and it just happened to be when the tax incentive first came about in 2005 and then was modified in 2008 and the industry just broke wide open here. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And this was also a time when ethnically ambiguous individuals were becoming the forefront of the conversation. That was the most politically correct statement I've heard all day. That was was wonderful. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Tim. I'm going to think it through that one. I'm like, how can I say this? That was so PC. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. My uh, my PR rep is to my left. And they're like, good job. Because, you know, I can afford that. Uh-huh. So anyway, uh, yeah, so that was that. And uh, it just because I think my look really helped me. And it, I mean, the first thing I did was with Kevin Bacon. I was on set a week and it was the coolest experience of my acting career thus far. Just kind of being in that moment, watching somebody great work. And it just went on and on from there. And it just came so naturally to me. And I feel I feel so um, conceited saying that because I know how many people struggle to become an actor or a host, you know, and then I'm like, oh, it was easy. But that side of my career really was very natural. And the hosting thing is actually, even though it's more of what I'm meant to do, has actually been more of a struggle because I don't know if it's the industry changing. Maybe you can speak to that. But something um, has been a little more difficult. Maybe it's my age too. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Well, you know, in terms of speaking to it, look, you're, you're right. I mean, if you don't live in LA or New York, you are literally on the outside looking in right now and you are at a disadvantage. And I, I hate to say that for anybody who is listening because there are girls all across America who want to do that and they feel like their only choice is to move to one of those two places. But my encouragement is this. Every industry evolves. I have talked to agents who have been at the forefront of the hosting industry right now and they do say that you know it will circle back around to being more mainstream again. Um, but right now it is kind of you know selective in LA and New York. And so I, you know, I think for you and me, you know, I guess what sucks about it is we're in the window right now where it's not that way. And it does make it very difficult. I mean, it's not that you or I aren't talented. It's not that you or I couldn't carry a show or do some big things. It's just that, you know, we aren't where they want us to be right now. So, you know, I think it forces us to figure things out. But I think the great thing about that is this, and you've experienced it because you talked about it all during this interview. And that is, you learn how to be resourceful. You learn how to do so many different right. things that if you weren't pressured and forced to do them another way, you would never do it. And so when they come to you next time 
And let's say the industry does circle back around. They're going to say, what can you do? And you're going to be like, here, A to Z, watch this. I've got this talent. I can do this. I, I can yeah. build this. I can market this. I can sell this. I can uh, shoot this. I mean, most hosts from those bigger markets, they can't do any of that. They know how to get on a camera and talk and maybe be funny or be entertaining or you know be energetic. They don't have any of those other skills. So at the end of the day, if you are one of those people who isn't there and you're learning how to do this stuff as Beth and I have, I think it's a huge advantage for you. And I think there's a lot of things that you could do with that and take it to other companies and other jobs and still do very well in your career. It's just, I know today everybody wants to be famous. They want to be part of the in crowd, you know, and you mentioned it earlier. You're a middle child. You want attention. You want love. I heard Johnny Carson say it one time, and it was probably the best thing I ever heard because it was like a moment of, of realization for me. He said, I just like to be in control. And when he's on a stage, he's in control of the audience. Or when he's in front of a camera, he's in control because he controls the narrative and he controls what's going on. But when he's sitting in the audience or when he's watching somebody else, he feels like vulnerable. And so that was one of the best things I ever heard because I'm like, that's exactly how I feel. I am more comfortable in front of a stage in front of a thousand people than I am in, you know, in a classroom sitting there watching a teacher. It's really weird for people to understand that, but I think you're probably one of the first persons that I've heard say it in a way that I'm like, yeah, that makes sense to me. To your point, you can develop this producer mindset, which gives you overall immensely more value, right? So you have that. But then also, right now, you have the opportunity to turn the camera on yourself and actually discover who you are on camera. What is your persona? What is your brand? Branding is huge for you, Tim, right? Mm -hmm. What, what would, what what are, who are you? What about you will make me want to watch you versus somebody else? And when you're doing all of these things on your own, you figure that out. And then when somebody comes for you, you know exactly what you are, you know exactly what you offer and you're 10 times more valuable to someone. And let me add one point to that. In that this whole you know process of I have to have 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, a million followers. Let me explain one thing in this industry that is so real and so organic. You only have to impress the right person. It's just one. Mm. And if you do and they catch you, it, it could be it from there. I'm going to give you two examples. We've all seen Wheel of Fortune, yes? Yeah. Pat Sajak was a weatherman in Nashville, Tennessee. Just a weather guy. No way. One weekend in Nashville in a hotel room was the legendary Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin was sitting there getting ready for a meeting, had the television on, and was watching Pat do weather and said, I really like something about this guy. Called his office and said, get me on the phone with his agent or whoever represents him. I want to talk to him. The next year, 1983, Wheel of Fortune was born. And guess who the host was? Pat Sajak. What? Now, did Pat audition for anything? Did he send in a resume tape? Did he even look at doing anything like that? No. It was just about being good. And when your time comes, and we'll just call this God's timing, if you will, mm-hmm. if you are recognized by the right person, you'll get your job. Now, Merv Griffin, and I've, already, I've actually talked to the person who was in the office when this happened, discovered Ryan Seacrest. Um, I, I can't remember the name of the show. Um, it was just a, it was a minor show that Merv was getting going and he basically put out a casting call and they sent in a bunch of tapes and uh, my buddy Scott was his creative uh, director of development and he said he was sitting in the office, he threw in the tape and here was this punk kid with like blonde, you know, bleached hair, total beach, you know, surfer kid 
And uh, Merv goes, hold on a second. I like this kid. And Scott's like, why? And he's like, I don't know. There's just something about him. I like him. And he's like, give him a call, mm. bring him in. And that was the beginning of his career. Now, Merv Griffin went on to be the mentor of Ryan Seacrest and taught him about the business side of things. So when you see all this stuff out there with Seacrest Studios and all these hospitals and the radio shows and all the big things that he has been able to do, guess who set him up for all that? Merv Griffin. It's all about the, oh, one, the one person seeing you at the right time can open up your entire life. And so don't concentrate on a million followers and all the people who are watching. Just concentrate on that. You know, look at the camera as one person and say, I'm looking for that right person to see this. That's the way to yes. approach it. And you will win. So uh, that's oh, a total man. soapbox. Do you want to drop the mic? Are you wearing a mic? <laughs> are you holding a mic? I'm on a stage right I would right drop now. it and kick it. That's what I would do <laughs> if I were you. Okay. So enough. I, I've been talking way too much. This is about I you. I love that, Tim. No, I love that. And honestly, I needed to hear that. So I know our listeners need to hear that. Okay. Well, good. Well, good. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your, your commercial uh, acting and also your spokesperson mm-hmm. jobs. Now, you, as we mentioned, you, you uh, serve as spokesperson for Mohawk Carpet and uh, Hexagon Technologies. Now, I, you know, that's a job that I've had a chance to do myself. What is it like to be a spokesperson for a company, especially a big company like that, where you're kind of the talking head for the whole, you know, whole, whole gang? You know, it's a lot less glamorous, honestly, um, and it is far more technical. But that, again, is another opportunity to brush up on your teleprompter skills, be challenged with scripts. I would be handed scripts moments before I was supposed to record them or go on camera and do them. Um, And now this one company, Hexagon, flies me to their conventions and I actually do walk and talks and interview the CEO. And, you know, it's become a far more integrated role that I have with them. And they were even thinking of diversifying. I do these uh, quarterly mashups and they were going to diversify And the CEO is like, no, everybody's used to Beth. We want Beth. And, you know, you develop that relationship with the people who are are watching, which happens to be the difference between, you know, normal, I say public facing content and um, and inter corporate. What is that? Intranet? Uh, What what would it be, Tim, if it's like. It's all it's corporate facing, right? So corporate, everyone that works I, I just, within that company. Yeah, I call I, I just kind of call it industrials, but you know, I mean, you can. Yeah. yeah there's definitely a, a term for it in the in the TV business. There's got to be yeah. a term, right? I, I just yeah, usually I call it industrials. industrials too. Me too. Okay, and so when you're doing industrials, only people who work for that company. I'm not sure what your audience knows him about, um, you know, the specifics, but only the people who work within that company will see it. Um, and so because of that. It, it's less glamorous, but it's it definitely, especially if these companies are more successful, it can be a great lucrative way to stay afloat and to continue making good money while you're pursuing your dreams. A lot of people get super stuffy or um, nose in the air about taking certain jobs. And granted, now at this point in my career, if the rate's too low and I don't, I feel like it, it, it's not going to offer me value for what I'm giving up to do the job, then I won't take it. But I definitely think these industrials and these corporate videos offer you a chance to continue to brush up on your skills and also represent a company and travel potentially and uh, keep being a better host. Now, do you have an agent right now or a metropolitan agency that you book these through? Or are you 100% self-sufficient? No, my, my agent is People Store here in Atlanta. Okay. And I was with Houghton for nine years. So I still work with both because Houghton has clients that have carried over for me. Um, that they will still book me on. Do me a favor. Tell me about the difference between the three industries that you work in. So you've got acting, you've got TV hosting, and you've got commercial acting. 
Now, I'll tell you from my standpoint, everybody's like, well, why don't you act if you loved a TV host? I am the worst person on the planet when it comes to memorizing things. If it's beyond two lines, I'm like, I'm totally screwed. (laughs) It sounds like for you, that's probably one of your strengths, because if you can do the acting, I know memorization is a big part of that. You know what? Since I've been hosting, I have lost that skill. It's awful. But that's actually good. It's good when you're a host that you forget it because you you need to be like that. Oh, my gosh, Tim. I cannot remember anything again like you to save my life. But the different, the main difference is like with acting, why I found acting so much easier is because scripts are conversational, right? So most times when you tell me you hate me, I would follow up with, I hate you too, or (laughs) why, or what did I do? Right. So I'm following up with a logical explanation or sentence. So when you look at conversations as more logical, it's easy. Oh, right. So I was mad here. He said this. And then I say this in response to what he was mad about. It makes sense. And that's usually how my brain can store it because it's one whole thought. So there's TV and film and, and, and there's that entity. Commercial work for me, which can be regional, can be local, can be national, right? But it is very much uh, about, not about you, it is about your product. And the product is a French fry. Like one of the, my most favorite jobs I've ever done was for Runza and I get slapped in the face with a French fry. Absolutely love it. It wasn't about me, it was about the fry. And so with commercial work, that's what I love it so much. Some people hate it. I love it because you want to talk about showing up to do your job and getting to be wholeheartedly you. That's why they hired you. They hired you for your look or your voice or the way that you, um, you know, said the lines and you and you're bringing yourself in there. And so commercial work is short. It's one day. And most of the time, it's a pretty decent rate. Things are obviously changing in that regard because honestly, I even hear in L.A. as well commercials are going more non-union. Almost all commercials used to be or were union out in LA. Now it's half and half here in Georgia. So then you kind of have to worry about rates and if they're going to be high enough for the amount of time they're wanting to use your image. Yeah. And look, I think that's going to get better in terms of the non-union stuff, just because of the the Supreme Court ruling that happened not too long ago, you know, because uh, AFTRA and SAG are the big, you know, unions that, you know, when it comes to acting and hosting that you have to go through. I think you're going to see more non-union jobs open up because, quite frankly, people just don't want to pay the union rates. I mean, I have lost a lot of jobs when I was part of agencies because people just didn't want to pay, you know, five, ten grand to have me for a day right. or when they could pay somebody else, you know, twenty five hundred. And so, uh, exactly. you know, I, I think there's advantages to both. Um, obviously, when you have mm-hmm. an agent, you know, they do the work for you. You know, they just call you and say, hey, we booked you a gig and we, we get a percentage. Otherwise, you got to go out on your own and be self-sufficient like we talked about before. Absolutely. You know, and the catch-22 with union versus non-union is when things go non-union, um, if you have a big enough market to where there are actors who are hungry to work, uh, a lot of times they'll take bottom of the barrel rate. And so it's, it's, it's harder to get maybe the rate that you deserve because you do have some people who are willing to work for nothing. And it's kind of taking the value of the industry down. But... That being said, I think it does open the door for companies to be able to provide um, or open the door for more talent altogether. You know what I mean? So I have mixed mixed thoughts on non-union because I think think unions can get out of hand as far as expense. You know what I mean? Well, you've definitely done great in the commercial business. Um, I I distinctly recall this and you probably remember when I tell you the story. I was watching the NFL draft. I don't know. Maybe it was last year. And they went to commercial and it pops up this commercial. I, I think it, I, 
I think it was a soda brand. I can't remember. And there you are in a minivan talking with the mic, doing kind of a, a, a look live oh, with yeah. the driver. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Beth. I texted you. And they're like, yeah, I just did that. I thought it was super cool. It was always nice to see somebody on, you know, kind of a national commercial. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I tell you, I really do. But see, I am I'm non-traditional. I'm like you said earlier, a lot of people they're just ready to be famous. Listen, Tim, at this point in my life, I I'm I I want to have a great family life. I have a husband who I adore. Um and I I have a home that I love and I just want to work and I want to enjoy the, the work that I do when I get to work and I just want to live my life. You know what I mean? And so the commercials are fun and they allow me to go to work for a day or two, act like a nut, and then carry on with my life. That being said, I would like an ongoing hosting gig five days a week, um, half hour to four, whatever you'd want me to do. For anyone out there who's looking for a host, that's five <laughs> two and sassy. Call one eight hundred da 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 da. Exactly. Well, you know, look, you mentioned the fame thing. And so, look, let you and I, let's just get raw with everybody listening right now. And this includes you and me. For any of okay. you who are in the hosting business, the acting business, anything where you're in front of a camera or in front of an audience, and, you know, this whole 80% of millennials want to be famous today. That's one of the big things. I want to be a YouTube star. I want to be this. You don't want to be famous. Let's just be honest about what this is about. If you step aside right now and look yourself in the mirror all you're really looking for is you want validation. You want to know that you're enough. You want, no, you want people to know that you exist and that you matter in this world. And it's not about being mm -hmm. famous. It's just about the fact that you want to feel like you matter. So let's just get honest with all of ourselves right now that that's what this is about. And it, you don't need to be famous. Maybe you just need a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe you just need a family that loves you. Maybe mm -hmm. you just need somebody to tell you that they think you're great. So don't get so wrapped up in the fame thing. Get wrapped up in finding people in your lives who make you feel yeah. that way. And, and look, a lot of the other stuff's going to fall to the wayside in terms of what you want. Yes. I mean, Tim, I love that. I love that. It's so weird. This is the second aha moment that you've had with me on the phone today. <laughs> but literally, it's so weird. I was driving in my car, and I'm such a TMI person, so uh, audience, welcome to my world. But, um, you know, I was literally like, Something in my heart has been has felt a little offset lately, and so I was thinking, I was driving, and I was saying out loud the things that I value because every day I want to wake up and I want the things in my life I value most to be my biggest priority. And and so num I was thinking to myself, I'm like, number one, it's my relationship with my husband, right? Number number one, every day if my life is good with my husband and my home is happy, I'm happy. And then next up, it would be like uh, for us as uh, friends and friends and family kind of fall together, but friends, but travel, right? I want to feel like I'm getting life experiences while I'm on this planet. And then I was like, wow, like down that four is probably my job. And I was like, well, do I really want, okay, I want to be successful. But then I was like, well, what does success mean? And then I was like, holy crap, I just want to be financially secure. Is it really, is it really that I have to be anything bigger than I am? Or do I just want that security? And then I was like, oh, holy crap. I just want to be significant. That's I true. just want to be significant. It doesn't matter how I make money. I think my job has been a search for significance for me. And it's funny, you're saying that you just have to look yourself in the mirror and own it. Because today I was like, wow, I'm just trying to be significant. <laughs> well, look, two words you use there, significance and success. 
how we define those is really what dictates the rest of what we're doing. So, you know, for a lot of people growing up today, you know, for those of you listening who are in your teens or 20s, you've been taught by culture that success means being rich or being famous because that's that's the culture you've grown up in. But at the end of the day, what is success? What is success to yeah. you? Is it, you know, I, and I loved how you just described yours. You prioritized them. You know, for me, it's, it's my relationship with God. It's my relationship with my mm-hmm. family. It's my physical health. Then it's my professional career. Yes. And then after that, it's, you know, emotional and personal pursuits and, you know, just kind of wanting the, the fun stuff of life, so to speak. So that falls a distant fifth. So success in terms of hosting, you know, if you looked at it right now, what is what is hosting really do for you? Uh, I think for me, it allows me to connect with other humans. But I think also a lot of it feeds that desire to feel important in the moment. So I think I'm telling stories and I'm connecting with people. And I think that's half of it. But I think the other half of it also fills some void in me, and which is that that significant void. Honestly, I mean, that would be my raw answer. Because look, I mean, look, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, when I first started out my career, I was 22. I was in a research department at Access Hollywood. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I'm right in the middle of Hollywood. I'm on the red carpet with the A-listers. Nobody knows who I am, Mm -hmm. but who cares because I'm associated with quote unquote fame. It was the most miserable nine months of my life. I hated it. Was it? Everybody made you feel like, you know, it's going to take you 10 years to work up to where you want to be. You can't just come out here and get on the air and this and that. And they just talked you down. And it really, it was debilitating for me. So then I went to West Virginia, Mm -hmm. became a news anchor. And my whole first part of my career there, probably the first seven years, uh, I I, look, I was just basically misled. I I thought Mm -hmm. that being a celebrity was going to be everything to me. The end all be all. And when I got you know, I guess what we'll call local celebrity status. And, you know, you get to the point where you can't go to the grocery store without people seeing you and shaking your hand and all that kind of stuff. As cool as that was, when I would go home and go to bed at night and stare at the ceiling, it was like, is this all it is? And yeah, yeah, I remember. And that's where I made the pivot in my career. I haven't gone back since. You know, I I do a lot of stuff where I still host and do that stuff, but it, it, it just isn't about that anymore. And, you know, Tim, with the tragic death, recently that we've had of people who seemingly have it all, i.e. Anthony Bourdain right now, who Mm -hmm. was an incredible storyteller. He was an incredible host. It was so fun to follow him on his journey. He he had everything. He was talented. He was a chef. He loved food. He loved culture. He traveled all over the world. And something made him feel like his own life wasn't valuable. And that's why I think I have to, and I don't know where I have to hang that value list because you reminded me too, mental health was a big one for me because um, I I have, I'm a worrier and I just want to, I just want to be peaceful in my life, which I think the God element plays into that, right? Where, you know, being very prayerful and um, open and loving and all of those things, but also counseling. I'm a huge advocate, you know, but taking care of myself. And my life and my husband and my home, then work comes so much later. And some days it feels like it's, it's the center of everything and it's not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a, and that's what I think I was stressing about today on my way up there is why do I put so much focus on my job when really it's the means to an end it's so that I can actually live my life. And though I love it and it's fun and I'd love to continue to be successful, 
that doesn't make it what defines me. We know what's interesting, Beth, is the podcasts I usually do are just 100% interview talking about it. I mean, I feel like we've run run a, a psychology session today for, for everybody listening. <laughs> totally it's, it's been fascinating, and we've dug into a ton of stuff. And I, I appreciate how open and honest you have been and just raw about you know, all the, the realizations that you've experienced over your career. I mean, I think this has been one of the most valuable podcasts I've done. So thank you. Oh, Tim, thank you so much. And you know what? Did you want me to talk anything about pageants for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot that this is called Life After the Crown. What am I thinking? Yes, you you did do pageants in Georgia, yes? I did. I did pageants. And actually, my mom, she put me on the stage from a very young age. And like I said, I was a middle child and I was very awkward. And so I literally every, I'm one of four, Tim, not a joke. My three other siblings won almost every pageant they were ever in. And I won participation trophies. Uh-oh. It was horrible. But then those years defined me and made me develop a personality, right? And made me become more than what I looked like because at that point they were just beauty pageants. So when I got into the Miss America system, it was for scholarship money. And the invaluable lessons that I learned specifically about how to articulate as a young woman, you know, how to have an opinion and how to be able to discuss that in front of adults at the time and care about something other than myself in the world. And I would tell any young woman to compete in the Miss America system, hands down. So as you look back on it, did you did you take away a good experience from it? I absolutely did. I started out with knowing nothing and we had nothing. My mother was single with, with four kids. We didn't, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have the best wardrobe and necessarily the best mentors in that regard. But, you know, I caught on really quickly and, um, and really loved the art of competition. And that's what the year, over the year of, of um, or more, a little more of competition, I went from not placing to placing every time I com- uh, I competed to then, you know, being first runner up to then, you know, uh, com- competing at Miss Georgia, which, you know, I wasn't top five at Miss Georgia. And that's totally fine. But I think pageants did so much for me as a young woman in helping me become articulate. And, and I can't stress that enough. Yeah, what you just said is so important. Um, you know, a lot of the people I have on here, obviously, they're state winners, national winners, whatever. But that's not the end-all, be-all. And sometimes it's not the best thing. Some of the most successful people I've had on, including yourself, are people who never won anything. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that right. you don't have to win a pageant or be the queen, so to speak, in order to be successful in your life. Now, some of them look at the, the crown as a, a catapult, so to speak. Sometimes it is mm-hmm. and sometimes it isn't. I can give you an example of plenty of national winners who have come on who have not really gone on to do much. Right. Take it for what it is. And I think you've done a great service to people by telling them just that it was a good experience, but I didn't need the crown in order to feel like I could succeed. It's so true. And at the time, it felt so monumental. Tim, like winning, feeling like I, I mean, you can compare yourself all day long. That's the only, I think, negative that can come out of it, honestly, but is the comparative part of it. But I think that's just a part of human nature. No matter what industry you're in, no matter what you end up doing, it's going to be very difficult to separate yourself from the people that you're competing against. And I think the moment, and this may come with age, that you determine that, hey, the biggest battle in life is with myself. You know, if I can get myself out of bed every day, if I can work on my physical fitness, if I can work on caring for other people and caring about the world that I live in, 
and then trying to make it a little bit of a better place, then I'm winning at life. And so in the moment when I was young, when I was 19 and I was competing, it would feel very devastating. And then you also feel like if you're not good at what you're doing, then what are you going to be good at? But there's so much more to that. And the lessons that you learn, even for me as someone who didn't take away a very big crown from the process, I was able to, to take away the lessons and also to get rid of all the things that didn't matter because it did. some of it was very catty. I mean, come on, it's pageants. But other parts <laughs> of it were incredible. So, I mean, it, the good comes with the bad and everything, right, Tim? I mean, it just kind of does. This has been like a one-hour psychological detox cleanse. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. Seriously, this has been great. Your poor listeners, <laughs> they're going to be so tired of my voice. They're going to be like, does this girl shut up or what? <laughs> no, I, look, I, I, seriously, I think there's, some people are going to get more out of this than any other podcast I've done. So uh, I appreciate you just having it a spirited conversation, so to speak. Uh, it's been fun. Absolutely, Tim. And you know what? Thank you for for uh, valuing me enough and, and my life experience to bring me on. And hopefully something we talked about today will resonate with someone and uh, will help make their life a little better or their mission. You yeah, know? and real quick, what's your website so people can come, uh, go find you and maybe connect with you on social media as well? Yeah, I would love that. Feel free to say hi to me, especially if you catch the podcast. My website is best-keener.com. Keener is spelled K-E-E-N-E-R. And then both of my social handles that I really use are Twitter and Instagram, and it's Beth Keener Host. So B-E-T-H-K-E-E-N-E-R Host. Beth, you're awesome. Thank you so much. You're awesome too, Tim. I really enjoyed my combo with you today. And you know, I am a huge supporter of yours. And guys, if you haven't read Tim's book and you want to be a host, you better go do it. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, hey. I believe that. You, you, got my, you got my SH together, as they would say, uh, when I got started hosting. You were the one who really helped me line my line myself up and get going in the right direction. Well, I'm glad it helped. I'm glad it helped. Well, great to see you. Good, good to, to chat with you, Kim. Okay. Yeah. That is today's episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, the podcast app, Google Play, YouTube, or you can just go to lifeafterthecrown.com. And if you're still involved in the pageant world and you're wondering, what does life after the crown look like for me and how do I prepare for it? Download my free Life After the Crown Starter Guide. It's a quick read, about 35 pages. It's going to give you a great blueprint on how to start planning now and not when it's all over. In order to get it, just go to timtialdo.com slash starter guide. And for weekly podcast updates, just follow me on Instagram at timtialdo. Until next time, remember the words of Micah 6.8. But he's already made it plain how to live. What God is looking for is men and women to do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. Have a great week, everybody. 